just in case we say something interesting but well i had these beats that were really cool that were like headphone headphones because i will never ever buy airpods because the second i buy them i will lose them like instantly it, i don't I'm understand not how them. anyone does not like lose their headphones their um sorry their airpods i just feel like you're throwing your money away like there's no way to keep track of that I found an AirPod once on the train. <laughs> I found one and I was like, this is the reason I will never get AirPods because I will be that person. I am too irresponsible. I have a $5 pair of wireless headphones from Target, but they're like connected on a string. Like, yeah. even if the string served no purpose, like I would just want them to be connected on a string to anyway. So there was yeah. less of a chance of me losing that. Yeah. And it also just... Personally, if I lose, like, it's not like you can buy an AirPod, like, by the piece, right? You buy them by right. the pair. So it's like you lose one, and now what? You just go buy another pair, and now you have three? Like, that's just annoying. <laughs> I I just can't. I can't. Also, I just feel like it's slightly pretentious to have AirPods, so. I think, I don't think, per, I don't think it's a good look. I think people look a little silly walking around with AirPods, but. Yeah that's just my opinion i also think people like with certain de depending on the type of beats i'm like all right okay what are you an nfl player chill out <laughs> i think that's what my headphones look like but they broke and i'm so sad about it Aww. i want i should get were they ones. the purple ones oh wait no i have those too i guess yeah but those were not wireless the only headphones that i feel like give me the sound quality that i want are just standard apple headphones yeah, I enjoy these ones, but I had, well, my iPhone came with a pair that could plug in and I lost them. <laughs> so, oh, <yeah. laughs> that's on me. I just shouldn't like, that's why I'm like, okay, these five, I got these $5 headphones from Target. They're on clearance. They're kind of terrible, but you should just decide so. that you're not going to lose headphones anymore. Just make that decision and... Do you think if it was my choice? I just feel like if you manifest it, if you speak it into existence, I used to be the type of person who like constantly was breaking their like iPhone screen. And then one day I was like, I'm done. I'm, I'm putting that life behind me and I have not broken it in like four years. So. Wow. Well, I <laughs> lose everything I touch. It drives Evan crazy because... I like pick something up and then I put it in a different place than I originally got it. And that's just how I like go throughout our apartment, just leaving a trail behind of things that I've picked up and put in a different place. Like every time that I'm, I'm gonna go for a run, I can't find my headphones. It's every single time. And I'm like, oh, I'll start putting them in the same place. And then I never do. No, that that's, I'm, I'm very much like that. Um, my shoes, I only have like, two pairs of shoes i am not i don't have shoes like that and i can never find them i don't know where they are i wear them every day i don't know where they are um and i'm constantly like jerrell i don't know where this is and i'm like freaking out and i've been frantically looking and he like walks in and he's like it's right here um, i can i can never yeah. find shoes i feel like 
is good because I leave them in one place. But my slides, I because I wear slides inside because we have you um, are an floors. NFL player. <laughs> <laughs> my mom gets me okay I swear to god my mom got me those slides too i would have never picked it out on my own but well and here like i feel like usually i wear like slippers or socks but our floor it's like hardwood so mm-hmm. it's kind of slippery and then gary sheds like a fiend just like hair everywhere so if i wear so- i can't just wear socks because it'll pick up her hair and it looks it gets all gross on the bottom of my socks so the slides are like the only thing I can wear because they don't get stuck to the ground and like then my feet don't get all dusty from the floors if they're not like super clean. My Fair mom enough. my mom got me the beats, my mom got me the slides. It is entirely her she's the NFL player, okay, not me. <sighs> or yeah. She's been watching like too many like LeBron James like uh commercials. <laughs> no, like, she just finds Let me just like <laughs> I don't even I don't even ask for these things. She just finds like really good sales and is like, mm, I think you would li- all like because we'll all get like headphones for Christmas. That'll mm-hmm. be like a surprise. And I'm like, oh, great. I would have never like thought I needed wireless headphones, but these are awesome. So. Oh, that's nice. Thanks. Rich people Mom. problems. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> she just finds really good sales. She's like, I mean, she has four children. She has to figure out what be to do around thrifty. Christmas. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait till I have like twenty kids and have to like get them all gifts. It's gonna oh, be God. so fun. Oh God. I can't <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day. I was like, it's gonna be really depressing, but there's gonna come a time in my life where Christmas is not all about me. And <laughs> <laughs> I am very upset about that. that is like I was like not where I thought you were going. But <laughs> once I have my own kids, like because I was like now that I'm like older, I was like, oh my god, I hope I can like go home for Christmas with like this pandemic and stuff. And then I was like, oh, if I like have my own kids someday, I'm gonna be doing all this stuff for them, and like I won't get anything. <laughs> I think you could still make it about you. You could be like Lorelai, <laughs> like oh. Christmas is like all about her and her existence Trust, only like i love buying other people gifts it is i think that i will have the best time doing that but i also love receiving gifts mm-hmm. and evan is just not he'll like be like just tell me what you want me to get you for your birthday and i'll be like well i don't want to tell you what to get me because i want you to just like think of me and think of something i would like and then give that to me and he's just like just tell me what you want but i'm like i don't i don't want to just give you a list I want you to like yeah be creative that's fair maybe you could do like okay here's one thing that i want but i also want you to get me one small thing True. that like you just He's think done. of that way like it gives him a little bit of a head start <laughs> i feel like every time a holiday or like birthday or christmas rolls around he actually like does think of something in like the nick of time but i'm like also i have sisters that you can like converse with that will probably just like they could give you a list and it would turn out fine but yeah just get her a book evan i know literally (laughs) like so many books i buy myself so i bought another book today oh my god i did Um, it your book i said i wasn't going to be arriving tomorrow (laughs) so you're gonna have a few I we went today was like a quarantine adventure. We went to a bakery to pick up some bread. We went to the bookstore and I got a book about how patients talk to doctors or like it's called like what doctors hear or something. And mm-hmm. I think well it reminds me I was listening to this podcast once about um 
like when people go to the doctor's office, they had like a fake patient go in and she would like mention certain things. She was like a candidate for hip surgery and she would mention certain things that like the doctors were supposed to pick up on, but like none of them did because like they were in such a rush because she mentioned that she was like taking care of her son who was disabled. And so then she wouldn't have been a good candidate for hip surgery because she would have been needed to be on bed rest. But like Mm -hmm. none of the doctors picked that up and they were like, yeah, yeah, just go do hip surgery. But so I assume that'll be something like that. And I'm excited about it. And also (laughs) I spilled, I I got an iced coffee and I spilled it directly into my crotch. Like, isn't that you? (laughs) (sighs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) First, because literally Every day I spill at least one to three things on my shirt, but also it reminded me of a time in high school when I was riding the bus and I had a water bottle in between my legs and it tipped back. I think someone like pushed it and it tipped back and spilled, but like the way it was again, like kind of the crotch thing where it spilled, but it made it look like exactly where it would have gotten wet if I peed because it was like, you know, like if someone spills water on like, the bottom half of their pants you can tell and people will be like ha ha you peed but it's clear they didn't this looked like i straight up peed um (laughs) that was a very traumatizing time in high school i think i had to like borrow someone's gym shorts um but today was not too bad as far as spilling my iced coffee it was just very uncomfortable (laughs) when i was in middle school i lost a friend um because she was wearing white pants and there was a chair next to me and there was ketchup on the chair and I just assumed that she saw the bright red ketchup and she sat down and then I look at her and I go there's ketchup on that chair (laughs) and she has not talked to me since like I swear oh my gosh like she like our friendship ended that day (laughs) That is fair. I do not blame her. I mean, I thought, I swear, I thought she noticed. Like, I wasn't right. staring at her, like, yeah. to sit. Um, and the, actually, I've had this situation twice. Well, not exactly the chair sitting, but once I, w- <laughs> I had, like, a bunch of Pringles. And I was in high school at this time. And a bunch of Pringles. And, like, some of them fell on the floor. And I picked them up and I just put them on the corner of my desk just i'm gonna throw them away and this girl she that i'm like i was like kind of friendly like it was my freshman year of high school we didn't know each other super well but we like spoke a few times maybe like first semester of freshman year and uh she just walks up and she like grabs the chip and starts eating it and i'm like and so i'm like well those pringles just fall on the floor and she like cursed me out and like never well, talked to me she like never talked to me again in high school i've so. eaten things that, that i've <laughs> dropped on the floor as long as there well, wasn't like a wet spot well i mean i know in a but high true school. i would want to know yeah. but also i just feel one i yes i probably should have told my friend who was sitting on the ketchup i probably should have like made it clear um and so you know who you are i'm really sorry <laughs> but the other person i'm like who do you think you are to just walk up to somebody's desk and start eating their food <laughs> Yeah, that's on you. You should have asked. You don't know. That reminds me. One more funny story and then we can get started. Um, We were going to get flu shots once for work. Um, So it was like me and my coworkers. And we had this like brand new intern who was coming with us. Um, And my friend had like this giant hole on his butt cheek (laughs) from his pants. Like he was wearing boxers. But like 
there was a hole and I like didn't say anything because I thought he knew because like it was this giant hole and then finally I like said something about there being a hole in his pants and he was like oh my god what like what there's a hole in my pants and he started freaking out and it was the funniest I like peed my pants in the line <laughs> to get the flu shot because it was the funniest thing oh it just like this giant hole like in his like well thankfully it wasn't like a girl yeah. because yeah. then there's like a risk of you not having that area covered at least yeah. like it was a guy who was wearing boxers yeah if i just true. saw his straight butt i'd be very concerned <laughs> but like boxers cover pretty much as much as shorts do as long as the front part's covered so yeah like you're fine i get that it's embarrassing but that was so funny this that i know you said the last one but that reminds me so one time at our old job i had a research participant come in and i was just wearing just a regular shirt from loft whatever it was like a three-quarter sleeve shirt and i guess like in the seam like where the arm meets like the rest of i don't know the shoulder i guess there was like a hole in the back and i didn't know and this freaking research participant sticks his finger <gasps> into my shirt and like no. starts rubbing around like he's walking i was walking That's him out crazy. and so he's behind me and he just he's like you have a hole in your shirt and i'm like uh, that was unpleasant you just violated my entire personhood so oh gosh not fun but <laughs> oh gosh that okay wait one more one more quick one because this reminds one me more. of when I was working with kids back in the day, um, I came home and my pants had split in the back, like right in my butt. Oh my <laughs> and like, obviously I was, you could like see my entire butt. And I was like, oh my God, if my pants had split like an hour ago when I was on the campus, that would have been like illegal. I could have gotten like arrested for exposure because my pants split in front of like children. And then like, I don't even know what I would have done because I was like 45 minutes away from, like what would I, like if my pants just, and I didn't even feel it. I didn't feel it. Evan was just like, your pants are like split, like SpongeBob split open pants. And like that could have been such a bad, that, that would be horrible. So Could you imagine, Almost. like, me going to grad school during, like, our supervision <laughs> and being like, I exposed myself to a bunch of children. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, well, it would have been an It accident. wasn't on purpose. Exactly, exactly. I will say, so I had a very similar thing where I had to, like, quickly, like, lift somewhere in the middle of the workday. Um, and as I was getting back into the lift for the lift to take me back to work... I like get in and I like it was a very high it was like an SUV but like really high up and so I had to kind of like jump in a little and I guess the way that I jumped in I was wearing a dress and it like from like the zipper down to like the end of the dress completely split and fortunately I always have the convenience of like living right across the street basically yeah that's and nice. so so I was like um can we just detour can you just drop me off right there and also please don't look as I get out of the car oh my god if i had um. if i had a dollar for every time i was wearing a skirt or whatever because i used to carry around a backpack all the time and like mm-hmm. my dresses would get like hiked up under the backpack oh, yeah. so then like but i was usually wearing like tights or something so i couldn't like f- i couldn't feel the breeze and like figure mm-hmm. out that my butt was in 
<laughs> one time someone like honked their horn at me and was like, you need to pull your skirt down. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm a mess. Anyway. Well, what a, well, what a good Samaritan, I guess. <laughs> I know. It was very nice. But I was like, I almost wish you like didn't say anything and I could just like go on and, in like, my find, life thinking yeah. that no one had noticed. Yeah, that's true. Well, um, great story time. On that note. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. The, uh, for this week, we chose to do um, like inequitable sentences. And so um, people who I, I don't know exactly. I, well, are you doing the case that you told me about? Yes. OK. So people who like they Yeah, they did something like wrong. I'm using air quotes, but wrong. But the sentence they broke that, the law. Yeah, they broke the law. But the sentence that was doled out was just not really equitable with what the crime was so it was just way too extreme um and i think this kind of follows a little bit of the theme that we did a couple weeks ago with wrongfully convicted um i don't know i just feel (laughs) i feel like we've done a few cases where we're like what like how were they sentenced to that long in prison but uh, we'll probably do a lot more of these um in the future All right. So I um, am doing um, a case that I first heard about back when I was living in Florida. Um, This actually takes place in Florida. So this is the case of Marissa Alexander. So on on August 1st, 2010, Marissa Alexander was in her Florida home with her three children and a strained and a estranged husband, Rico Gray. When he My found text takes place in Florida too. Weird. Florida sucks. Trash. <laughs> okay, continue. Sorry. Start over. Cut that part out. Um, so I mean, um, I Florida is trash a little bit. I mean, there I are like nice Florida. people in. Flo- I know. Oh, you're from Florida. Okay, never mind. I like Good people parts. do come from Florida. Yeah, I'm one of the best people I've Clearly. ever met. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so yeah. Uh, so she was in her Florida home with her three children and a strange husband, Rico Gray, when he found text messages on her phone that enraged him. Although Marissa had just given birth to their daughter less than two weeks earlier, she and Rico had already separated. Rico was angry over whatever he had seen on Marissa's phone, and he began yelling, calling her names, and threatening her. So Rico, who had a history of physically assaulting Marissa, said, if I can't have you, nobody is going to have you. Which is like the classic line I feel like you hear in tv or movies or like yeah, lifetime things when like, somebody is about to do something that they should not be doing against their partner i feel like also they say that's this just line. such a cliche come on right like chill i am my own person 
I no one belongs to me, in the words of Jessica Simpson. Anyone. <laughs> um, so yeah, he said, if I can't have you, nobody is going to have you. As he blocked Marissa from leaving the situation. Uh, Marissa claims that Rico assaulted her. He shoved her, strangled her, and held her against her will. Marissa pushed past her estranged husband and ran to the garage where she tried to open the garage door to help create this distance from Rico. Both Marissa and Rico confirmed that despite Marissa's attempts, the garage door wouldn't open. Rico would not let up on his threat, so Marissa retrieved her gun from her car glove compartment. Her instinct was to protect her home, her children, and and her personhood. Florida law, particularly the controversial stand your ground law, secured Marissa's right to do so. She repeatedly asked Rico to leave the house, but he continued to threaten and physically intimidate Marissa. So Marissa shot one warning shot into the ceiling to scare Rico off. She did not aim at him or anyone in the home, nor did she hit or injure anyone. The warning shot, however, did finally motivate Rico to run out of the home. Police arrived on scene. Despite the fact of the case laid out in front of officers, Marissa was arrested and charged with three counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon because in Florida, despite the standing ground law at the time, um, shooting a warning shot was illegal. Seriously? So shooting, if she shot him, it would have been fine, but because she... Basically. um, So, first, as I mentioned, Rico had a history of domestic violence. By Rico's own admission in his disposition with investigators, he said, quote, I got five baby mamas and I hit every last one of them except for one. Um, So, really upstanding guy, you know. Um, Rico also goes on to describe the events of that night. He said, I was mad, you know. She wanted to get by me and I wouldn't let her by. I was using my body to pretty much contain her in that one area where I wanted her to be at. She got to the bat. She got the bathroom door closed and she locked it. I beat on the door hard enough where it could have broken open. I, the door probably has some dents. When asked if he'd threatened to hurt her that night, Rico responded, that's correct. So it's important to note that there was also like legal record of past violence. Um, and Marissa had even gotten a restraining order against Rico due to the physical violence that Rico had inflicted upon her in the past. All of this, in my opinion, offers compelling support for the fact that it was completely reasonable that Marissa feared for her safety and the safety of her children that night and did what she felt like she needed to do to secure her safety. Um, even if this defense wasn't compelling, Florida is infamous for their stand your ground law. Florida is also infamous for a lot of Florida people doing a lot of weird things. But this particular law states a person who is not engaged in an unlawful activity who was attacked in any other place where he or she has a right to be has no duty to retreat and has the right to stand his or her ground and meet force with force, including deadly force, if he or she reasonably believes it is necessary to do so to prevent death or great bodily harm to himself or herself or another, or to prevent the commission of a forcible felony. So long, like, seems like really it long- covers the situation completely. Yeah really long way to say that you have a right to protect yourself and that running away does not have to be like your only option. Um, And so in this case, here's a man who has a history of physically brutalizing this person. She's trying to protect her children. She's trying to protect her home. She's asking him to leave. He's threatening her. 
he, by his own admission, is saying that he tried to keep her captive effectively. Um, and he um, also did threaten her life. And so she, with, I think, with she, what she did was well within her right, given the, sta- the Florida standard ground law, regardless of where like you it, stand. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so this law has been met with much criticism. However, as it stands, there have been many controversial case- cases to successfully use this defense. Um, and so I will share a couple cases that I'm sure a lot of people are well aware of. So, for example, in the case that sparked the Black Lives Matter movement, just 120 miles away from Marissa's Jacksonville home, George Zimmerman stalked, harassed, and accosted a 16-year-old child named Trayvon Martin. They began to fight, at which point George Zimmerman shot and killed Trayvon Martin. Florida Stand Your Ground law protected Zim- George Zimmerman's murderous actions that night, and he avoided charges by a grand jury. In another case, a 28-year-old Marcus McLaughlin was driving with his girlfriend and three children when he pulled into a, a convenience store parking lot and um, illegally double parked in a handicapped parking spot. He should not have done that. Handicapped spots are for handicapped people. And he, but he, so he quickly, so he parked in that spot and he quickly ran inside with one of his children to buy snacks. His girlfriend, three-year-old and four-month-old remained in the car. Another name, another, sorry, another man named Marcus Draca aggressively confronted Marcus's girlfriend over the car being illegally parked in the handicapped space. Marcus came out of the store and pushed Michael away who then fell to the ground. Michael immediately pulled out a gun and fatally shot Marcus in the chest in front of his family. The sheriff determined that under Florida law that Michael's actions met the legal definition of self-defense and he was never even arrested. So there have been times that this law has been used and people have actually died. In this case, we're talking about a warning shot. That's for insane. a woman who that, is being like, threatened and she someone, was arrested. Yeah, but someone could be in like a handicapped spot and that would be an acceptable. Like it wasn't even in your own, it was in a public space. Technically, even with the George Zimmerman case, like they were just walking through a neighborhood. So even that is, in my opinion, a, a very huge deviation from where the law started. The other name for the law is the Castle Doctrine, which um, basically it started because there was an elder, an elderly man who another man, I guess, stumbled into his home and he was frightened. So he shot the guy. And so the reason that the standard ground law ever became a thing was because Florida lawmakers felt that you have the right to, quote, protect your castle. And so... In this case, we actually do have a woman who is trying to protect her castle, and she was arrested, Um, whereas we've seen in the past that this law has, um, or we've seen in other cases that this law has um, been upheld. Um, So all that to say, however controversial the law may be, the precedence is clear. Marissa's non-lethal actions that night should have been protected by Florida's stand-your-ground law. However, they were not. The state attorney, Angela Corey, met with Marissa and offered her a plea deal, which would have sent Marissa to prison for three years. Marissa felt that she had done nothing wrong and knew in her heart that the circumstances of that night spoke for themselves. She knew that she had acted in self-defense and had no intention or desire to hurt anyone. And remember, she literally did not hurt anyone. And I'm using the word literally, literally. Um, so Marissa rejected the plea deal and her case went to trial and all evidence was presented. Um, 
Unfortunately, after 12 minutes of deliberation, a jury convicted Marissa, a black woman, on all charges. 12! Uh, So I mention her race because in cases like this, I think race is always relevant. In the other cases that I'd mentioned, the person that the person pulling the trigger and ending the lives of these black men were white men. Um, in this case, we have a black woman in, the, in fear of her life shooting a warning shot. And it's hard to imagine that race and gender did not play a role. Um, and so when it came time for sentencing, another Florida law was used and actually upheld in this case. Um, so Florida had a 1020 life mandate, or I guess Florida still has. So, um, Florida has a 1020 life mandatory minimum sentence. That meant, although Marissa had no prior criminal record, no prior arrest, nothing. In 2012, a judge sentenced her to 20 years in prison for firing the warning shot that night. What? Right. That's unbelievable. Like, like if you have no prior record? No prior record. But there is a mandatory and it was a gun that she legally she owned. Had a, she correct? had a she had a legal right to the gun. So the only law that she technically broke was in Florida. Apparently, firing a warning shot is illegal. However, apparently, if she had shot her husband in the chest that night, then I guess it would have been fine. Um, and it's really interesting because the state attorney that was on her case was also the same state attorney that was on the George Zimmerman case. And she didn't seem to have the same overzealous um, approach to um, the murder of Trayvon Martin as she did for Marissa um, firing this warning shot. Um, But she basically throughout the trial just kept saying, I don't think she was scared. I just don't think she was scared. I Oh, because you're the expert on whether or not someone was scared. Exactly. Like, she, you know, apparently can, I guess, see into the past. I don't know. Um, but it's what's interesting, what's even more interesting is, like, you literally, it's not like her estranged husband was like, nope, I was sitting on the couch minding my own business. He's like, no, 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 I was, exactly. I was threatening her. Like, oh, I was beating the crap out of that door. I could have broken that door. Like, I was calling her all sorts of... Uh, names and all of these things you think "Hmm, nope no way that this woman could be scared and so that's part of why I do bring up her race because there I mean if you want to like look into like different like social psychology types of research looking at like cognitive bias and all sorts of things for whatever reason like black women are often seen as like less fragile i guess than like white women well, yeah, or that's like a more intimidating like, um, yeah how doctors are often like told in med school that black people experience pain in a different way than like other races which yeah. is just stupid yeah exactly um Anyway, so after activist groups rallied around Marissa, um, upon learning about this sentencing decision, Marissa obtained new counsel who appealed the decision and Marissa was granted a new trial. Um, This same 
the same state attorney, Angela Corey, um, threat this time threatened to put Marissa in prison for sixty years if she was found guilty during this this uh, <laughs> trial. So she that's was just vindictive. Yeah. So she's like, yeah, fine. You want a second trial? That's fine. But if they find you guilty instead of twenty, I'm sending you to prison for sixty years. That's what I'm going to recommend to the judge. Um, and so the system had already screwed Marissa once, and so I have a hard time believing that even with an impending new trial, that Marissa was confident that justice would be served and that she would be protected as a victim in this case, um, especially with the threat of 60 years in, of imprisonment looming over her head. Um, and so Marissa ultimately decided to plead guilty and take a plea deal. Um, and so on January 27, 2015, Marissa was really, was sorry on tw- on January 27th, 2015 marissa was released as the pleas as the plea deal capped her sentence at three years um and so the entire time that she basically from the time that she got arrested um till then they counted that as time served um and so unfortunately though marissa was not free yet um in addition to having a criminal record following her forever um, and the three years of time served Marissa was also required to live under house arrest for another two years and as part of house arrest which I don't know if all states do this or if it's just Florida she had to pay like a little over a hundred dollars a week for the use of the ankle monitor Um, and then she had to pay another $500 every other week for the cost of bond for the full duration of the two-year period and so I did okay but how are you supposed to pay that if you're under house arrest and can't can you have a job yeah so she so under house arrest she I think well I don't know if she was allowed to work I know that she was allowed to like take her kids to like medical appointments okay um that's (laughs) the least that they could allow you to do so I'm not I I don't know the full details but I did the math that's somewhere in the ballpark of $35,000 over the course of two years so Um, so Marissa, um, has since finished serving her sentence, but I still think that this case highlights, um, further disparities that exist in our justice system. Um, whether it was her, whether it was like the 20 year sentence or the threat of 60 years, or even like the five years that it ended up, ended up actually being, I think that this really showed a huge flaw in our judicial, judicial system. Um, and the judicial system and the law really failed Marissa and her children, um, by one, not protecting them as victims and two, imposing such an inequitable sentence that it's not just Marissa who had to serve that alone. Like her children had to know that, you know, her mom, that their mom was, you know, not only being violently attacked, but wasn't able to protect themselves to protect them without, going to prison effectively um and i just like this case especially in the in the light of like like aunt becky getting two months or whatever oh geez i'm like in the face of like stuff like that or what what, did felicity huffman got like what two weeks or something i don't know like ridiculously yeah it's just like wow and somebody literally protecting their home their personhood not wanting to be brutalized by somebody who has proven themselves capable of brutalizing them 20 years and like fully admitting to it too. yeah i'm i'm really glad that she ended up not having to serve the 20 years but i don't think that how it ended up is 
like at all equitable at all i think that there should have been no charges i think that she should probably be paid thirty five thousand dollars and some um seriously yeah i would oh gosh i i don't envy her but that's my case Oh boy! <laughs> Glad that one was such a uplifting one, so I could bring everyone down. I mean... just kidding. It was it was pretty sad, but this one, this one really is feels very personal, like personal to me because there are just so many similarities. I see so many similarities between myself and this person. First, starting with we share the same name. Um, I was, I found this case, I was on Reddit and I saw it, um, like a meme picture of it. And I was like, there's no way that this can be true. Like I have to look this up and I did. And it was true. So you'll soon find out how awful this truly was. Um, so Rachel Hoffman graduated from Florida state university with a degree in psychology and she was ready to start a new life. She was ready to leave Tallahassee. She wanted to move to Arizona where she planned to attend culinary why are you laughing i I mean if somebody says they want to leave tallahassee you like wish the best for them not arizona i know arizona (laughs) is like hot but that's where she wanted to go she wanted to attend culinary she has a right to dreams yes go ahead yes um so rachel was thinking about becoming a mental health counselor but decided she wanted to maybe invent a new form of therapy where she would teach kids to bake cakes or make spaghetti carbonara um, this would be an alternative option for kids who didn't want to sit down and like talk to a therapist and would give them hands-on skills, which I think is actually, that would actually a be great cool, idea, yeah. right? Like that, that would be awesome. Like, and instead of art therapy, like culinary therapy almost. Yeah. Well, I've watched so many episodes of Chopped where people talk about, you know, like I was addicted to drugs, I was living on the streets, and then I started working in a kitchen and it totally turned my life around. Mm-hmm. But there are probably just as many people who do the kitchens are like notorious for having lots of drugs and <laughs> terrible schedules and leading the to addiction be flowing in kitchens guys <laughs> um anyway so she loved music loved to dance her parents margie weiss a registered nurse and massage therapist and her father irv hoffman divorced when she was a baby but she was the only child that either of them had and they worked really hard to make sure that her her life was not impacted by by their splitting and they were they were on good terms it was just irv was originally um from chicago he got it he actually got his counseling degree in florida um and margie was a little bit of a free spirit while irv who was the child of hungarian czech holocaust survivors was you know needed more stability needed more structure in life so it just it just didn't work out between them but they you know remained cordial with each other um and despite Rachel's decision to pursue culinary school, she actually had been accepted into a master's program in mental health counseling. Um, In her personal statement, she wrote about her grandparents and how they taught her the importance of family, hard work, and economic survival. So as a child, Rachel was encouraged to pursue her love of music. She played flute. She played piano for a few years. When she was growing up, she was a ballerina, a brownie, and then a, an equestrian. She also, before she had turned 18, had been skydiving and hiked the Grand Canyon. She also loved attending music festivals with her friends. And she had a cute little kitty 
um, who, if it's the cat that was in the Reddit photo, is a black cat, which I have a black cat too. Um, his name is Bentley. He had his own Facebook page, and she wrote that his favorite music was Cat Stevens, Stray Cat Blues, and the Pussycat Dolls, which, like, 10 out of 10 sense of humor there. Um, so, uh, getting into the story, Vince Brunig was one of Rachel's best friends. They grew up together, went to college together, and even called each other brother and sister. Vince said that him and Rachel often smoked weed together and would also sell it. Uh, Vince told The Rooster, which is a publication that is based in Longmont, Colorado, but they circulate in Boulder, so Evan used to like pick up The Rooster all the time and read it. Um, she said, I'm not going to say she didn't sell drugs because she did. I did. We all did. You make a couple extra hundred bucks and you get high for free. So in the article, it said one of Rachel's friends was caught with some marijuana and told the police that Rachel had supplied it. I also, in an article I read from the New Yorker, it said that the police officers went to her apartment after someone complained about the smell of weed and said that she might be selling drugs. So it's, there's a little bit of conflicting information, whether it was one of her friends or maybe just someone that lived by her. Um, Do you have, or I don't, I don't think you've said it, but what drugs was she selling? Oh, I'm getting there. Oh, okay. Um, so this story takes place in 2008, just a few years before pot would be legalized in Colorado and many other states. Um, whether it was a friend or someone else, the cops did show up and they asked if she had any illegal substances in her apartment. Rachel said yes. The Tallahassee Police Department raided her apartment and found a quarter pound of weed, some ecstasy, and Valium pills tucked under her couch cushions. This put Rachel in a bad place if she was charged with possession of cannabis with the intent to sell and maintaining a drug house, um, then she could potentially spend up to four years in prison, which is really scary. And so I'm not saying that she was like an angel, that she didn't, you know, not do anything wrong. But especially now, looking back on this case, considering that marijuana is legal in so many places... But in 2008, it was so like, oh, weed is the devil. Weed is so bad. Um, so to make matters worse, this unfortunately wasn't Rachel's first drug offense. When she was a senior about a year earlier, she was pulled over for speeding and the police found almost an ounce of marijuana in her car. I don't know if that's a lot or not a lot, but. I mean, an ounce of like beans isn't a lot, so. I'm gonna say no. Um, <laughs> but like nowadays, like if someone got pulled over with an ounce of marijuana in their car in Colorado, I'm not sure what would happen there, but definitely wouldn't. So she ended up being ordered into a substance abuse program and had to go undergo drug testing for this. And she missed one of her drug tests and spent three days in jail. So I think it's really easy to sit here and be like, oh, well, she missed a drug test. She's irresponsible, blah, blah, blah. Um, but actually... So I have worked within kind of a substance abuse facility before, and the restrictions that they have for people are crazy. So what I did was I actually went up and, or I went up, I went and looked up the Leon County's drug court program online. So this might be slightly different from when she was going through drug court, and I'm not entirely sure. Leon County is the county that Tallahassee is located in, so I'm not sure if she was, like, arrested slightly outside or whatever. But either way, this is, like, a pretty good, you know, idea of what someone has to go through when they are in drug court. 
So there's three phases. Phase one lasts a minimum of three months where you have to supply two specimen drug screens and adhere to one to five random drug tests a week. You have to attend an IST weekly group. I couldn't figure out what IST stood for, but I imagine it's some sort of like substance abuse prevention group and also adhere to your treatment plan, goal directives, whatever those might be. So that's she's in college. She, you know, might have a part time job or have like commitments. So attending a weekly group and then doing potentially. So I don't know if it's two scheduled drug screens and then you have to do one to five random ones. So that's you could at minimum be doing three at most be doing seven. And if you have a job, you know, you can't just if the times conflict, you know, these drug tests aren't open 24 seven and you can just pop in wherever. Usually there's one designated spot where you have to go. And if you can't get there, then then you're screwed. And especially in Colorado where I was working, there wasn't a great public transportation system. So if your license was suspended as a part of your, you know, thing, if there wasn't a great bus to like get you there, then you would have to be like taking Ubers or taking taxis. And it's just a lot. It's just a huge time commitment to be doing all this. And like at the end of the day, life happens. I get that she's in trouble. It has to like step it up a little bit better. But like the most responsible person, life still happens. And sometimes well, I'm thinking I couldn't like back when before like COVID, I'm like, I would have a hard time doing all this. And not only that, but you usually have to pay out of pocket for all of these things. So the more drug tests you take per week, the more money you're having to pay. You have to pay to attend groups. And like, you might have the added cost of having to like taxi around everywhere, you know, having to give up certain shifts to make sure that you can like get to these places on time. So that's just phase one and that's three months. So then there's phase two, which is also a minimum of three months. Um, same number of possible drug screens, and you have to attend an RPP group twice twice monthly. So that drops down. And I imagine that RPP stands for some type of relapse prevention. Um, and then you also, again, have to do your treatment plan, goal directives, whatever that means. Um, so if you somehow manage to do all that, then you graduate to phase three. And this is a minimum of six months. For that, you only have to do one specimen drug screen and or adhere to randoms zero to five times a week. You must participate in one individual counseling session per month or as directed and attend a 12-step or alternative meeting once a week. So it seems like there's a little bit of flexibility on what type of prevention thing. But like for someone who just got caught smoking weed, do they necessarily need to like learn about relapse prevention and like... It, it's it just doesn't seem like it's fit for that um the crime is not fit um yeah i so, feel like a lot of laws for drug offenses i get it so for some people marijuana can be bad but like it's not meth we're not talking about <laughs> we're not talking about like some sort of intravenous well right i mean like alcohol could be bad yeah for someone i think we can argue that sometimes the effects of alcohol are the externalizing probably effects of alcohol are a lot more um problematic for society <laughs> than 
Well, to me, it's just this doesn't really sound like a system that's setting people up for success. It feels like it would be so easy to like miss a drug test for a reason that, you know, that you just couldn't get off your shift and work and you had to choose between leaving and getting fired or going to pee in a cup somewhere like across the county. Yeah. Like that's that's frustrating to me as you know someone in the mental health field i want people to be set up for success instead of having all these crazy rules and basically draining someone's bank account i understand in theory why it seems like a good idea but in practice i don't think it is helpful at all um and i don't think that there's much flexibility like you can't call them and be like oh can i come in tomorrow instead because I'm scheduled to work or someone's borrowing my car and I can't get there. There's there's not much flexibility there. So the fact that she missed a screening and had to spend time in jail is not like, oh my God, she's the devil. It's the end of the world. Um, so the police ended up, after this apartment raid, they made Rachel an offer that would be really hard to refuse. If Rachel agreed to be a confidential informant, they would not file any charges against her. So, Rachel's story was not uncommon at the time. She was one of thousands of people each year who would agree to cooperate with police for a promise of leniency in the criminal justice systems. In the New York article I read, it was published in 2012, it estimated nearly 80% of all drug cases in America involved a confidential informant. Um, So this was a great option for police departments who were experiencing budget cuts and these informants were free and deploying them involved no paperwork and no institutional oversight. They definitely didn't involve lawyers or judges. um, Isn't it making like, sorry, isn't it just, I don't know, with like our line of work, informed consent, consent in general is such a big like deal. I could not as a researcher i can't even do research in like a prison really because that's like a protected population you don't want people to be coerced into doing something that they don't want to do right or to feel like they don't have a choice and so it's crazy to me that like you can leverage someone's freedom and say no i want you to do this effectively kind of dangerous like job i want you to like be an informant like you know like you know probably this is the the people that they would have be having to inform on live by a code of like no snitches you know exactly and, like what well, i was gonna say yeah it so can, it just seems it insane <laughs> it, <laughs> it just, can, it it just seems it, it seems like it should be illegal to even like confidential confidential informants should be illegal i feel like but that's my opinion. right so the informants are sometimes juveniles as young as 14 or 15 they do have a rule at this time that you have to be older than 13 so which is just appalling um they're sometimes you know struggling with addiction and some are like rachel who are in between a rock and a hard place of like okay i might go to jail for four years or i can do this and get off scot-free um so rachel's case was unique only in the sense that she came from a middle class background and she's white Typically, confidential informants are young people from lower-income communities, often Black and Latino, who are pressured to be informants. So, Rachel was, she first set up a student at Florida State, who is a small-time campus dealer, but she immediately felt 
guilty and confessed to the student what she had done. He forgave Rachel and she even promised to make it up to him by paying his overdue utility bill. Together, they came up with someone else to give to the police to, to bust. They, the police had made it clear that busting a small-time pot dealer wouldn't be enough to get her off the hook. The student told Rachel about a man he, who he'd seen dealing drugs at a car detailing shop, who he only knew as Dre. It turned out that Rachel had just had her car detailed by this man, and he made a comment about how her car smelled like marijuana. So, through her connection with this Florida State student, she got in contact with Dre's brother-in-law, Danilio Bradshaw, to get 1,500 ecstasy pills, a couple of ounces of cocaine, and a small and pretty handgun. So... Vince, the friend, spoke to Rachel after her arrest. He was a little nervous because she was out on probation before she saw a judge. Vince was still selling weed and was nervous that he could be next. He could be caught. On the one hand, he knew that Rachel would never turn him in. But on the other hand, he was worried that she might be working with the cops. And he was right. So he later met with Rachel in person and she told him that she was setting up two people in the neighborhood. Right away, Vince was concerned. These guys were two convicted felons uh, that she had never, so she had met the one guy before, but not, she didn't know them. So the police wanted Rachel, who had never handled a gun or large stashes of hard drugs. I think the pills that she had back in her home were, were not enough to count for selling. And I'm not sure if she was selling them, um, but 1,500 ecstasy pills, cocaine, and a freaking handgun. Like, like, who do you think this girl is? <laughs> what That, to me, seems like a liability yeah. of someone getting a gun. Like, what if she picked it up and actually shot a policeman? She, like, she didn't know how to use this gun or, like, what to do with it. And they did, certainly didn't give her training. Um, yeah. But Rachel assured Vince that she knew what she was doing. And Vince would later regret not telling her that this all sounded too dangerous. On the day of the sting, Rachel headed to the police headquarters. Her boyfriend texted her, I kind of like you, so be safe. The joking tone indicated that neither of them knew how dangerous the setup really was. So Rachel was given $13,000 in marked bills. They fitted her, like, right? Like, they fitted her with a wire and sent her by herself to meet with these two men. Why wouldn't they think this seems suspicious? Like a little, like a little white girl with like a bunch of cash and all these drugs. Old. Like this to me, like I, like if I'm watching a TV show, I'm like, oh yeah, nope, this is not going to turn out good. You know? Well, it didn't. Uh, Spoiler. The police, (laughs) they said, don't worry. They'll, We'll protect you. We'll step in if anything goes wrong. Um, There were more than a dozen local and federal agents keeping an eye on Rachel. So, you know, it's safe to assume that Rachel might have had this false sense of confidence. Um, You know, a lot of people expect that the police will be able to protect them. And, you know, especially like a middle class white person, they wouldn't have any reason to believe I think that the cops would be like misleading them especially but if they're the ones sending you out into this situation you're like oh yeah i saw that episode of swat they definitely have to have right. a tight operation well and also being a young person whose frontal lobe has not yet developed you think that nothing bad will ever happen to you and that you will never you don't 
you can't quite comprehend like, oh, I might be in an accident or doing these drugs might be bad for me. I might overdose and die. When you're young, and like I'm young still, but when you're, you know, she was just like fresh out of college. So she, I'm sure, was still kind of riding on that, oh, I'm invincible. Like nothing bad will happen to me. It's fine. And the police are there. Like I can see where she might have thought that everything would turn out okay. Um, but one hour later, they lost track of her. <laughs> they said, uh, they would later say it was Rachel's fault that she agreed to follow the men to a new follow-up location. So it's, to me, I'm thinking, you know, it's possible that she thought that the police would just be able to follow her to the new location. And she also might have been afraid to, n- like, not follow them because what if the men grew suspicious if she was, like, meeting them there and they were like, okay, well, just so we know you're cool, follow us here. And if she was like, no, 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 I can't go there. They might be like, are you with the cops? Like, I'm just trying to picture what she might have been thinking at the time. Yeah. She could, because she wasn't a trained law enforcement officer. Mm-hmm. She didn't know how to, like, operate in a sting operation, especially if she was feeling scared or nervous. She was, like, a 23-year-old girl who was out on her own with some really dangerous... And they had guns! Like... <laughs> Insane. So, the police didn't know where Rachel was. They went to Rachel's boyfriend's house and asked if Rachel was there. They were worried that she might have run off with the money, but her boyfriend didn't know where she was. He would tell the New Yorker that cops said she was with us until S got crazy. Poop got crazy. Um, So, (laughs) that sounds much better. Um, The authorities contacted Rachel's parents to see if they had heard from her. They hadn't. The police, you know, didn't mention anything about the drug bust gone wrong, and her parents started to get suspicious when they went to the police station and they were directed to narcotics instead of the missing persons unit. So, do you, so from that, it sounds like her parents did not know that this, like, was even a thing. No. They, okay. No. Um, well. I mean, she was 23, so she was, like, an adult. Not that I don't think that the ad- adolescent informants would maybe have to inform their parents yeah but it also doesn't sound like they're like the when the parent when the parents showed up that they were necessarily very forthcoming they were like go to narcotics and oh we'll see they (laughs) only learned about this later after they went to rachel's apartment to see you know if they could find her they could wait and they turned on the news and they learned that uh they learned about this bust they also learned that rachel's car had been found in a small rural town called perry that was about 15 miles, 50, not 15, miles south of Tallahassee. Oh, my God. They found her iPhone on the side of the road. And so this was a gift from her dad, Irv, who I mentioned earlier. And he said, you know, she loved that phone. And someone would, like, have to pry it away from her to get it. I got her that phone as a gift. She wanted it so bad. There's no way that she would just, like, toss it out. So they had a feeling that something was wrong. So Rachel's body was found in a dry creek bed near Cabbage Grove Road in Perry two days after the sting. So this is where, and maybe this is like a selfish realization, but so the sting occurred on May 7th, 2008, which is my birthday. So like to me, it's like crazy that this day that is so positive to me was literally terrible. And her name is Rachel and she has a black cat and... Just like all kinds, I just feel, and like her dad's a counselor. She was thinking about being a counselor. It's just, I see a lot of similarities between myself. And that just like freaked me out that that's the date that it happened. Um, 
So she was shot five times in the chest and head with the gun she was sent to buy. Oh my gosh. The killers had covered her body with her Grateful Dead sweatshirt and an orange and purple sleeping bag. So the media would later say that Rachel was killed because the men found out that she was an informant. However, a family member of Andrea Dre Green um, told the New Yorker that he was planning to give Rachel a bag full of aspirin and take, he planned to just take off with the money. So it seemed like from the start, he was just going to pull a con on her and she wouldn't have even, you know, had anything to show for it. But once they found out that she was an informant, they killed her. It's so the sad. Cops, I know. And here's like the most messed up part. The cops continued to blame Rachel, saying that her murder was the result of her not following directions. In police statements, they portrayed her as this horrible drug dealer and this, you know, low life. And her friends and family were seeing this on the news and they were like, what? <laughs> what is going on this is not what she was like at all Mm -hmm. so again it's a case where you know she wasn't a perfect person i'm not going to sit here and say that she didn't break any laws but did she deserve to have her entire reputation destroyed after all of this or to even put in like to be put in such a dangerous situation clearly the police officers failed like why was there nothing to track her why did you not i i presume that there was no like instruction or safe word or something that if things go awry say this or whatever like we will come and Wait, help you like here's you sent her to buy a gun by herself like, like okay oh that's God. just so Irv ended up meeting with Michael Chavo. I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, but the husband of the late Terry Chavo. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? And um, so I couldn't tell from the article whether Michael Chavo was his neighbor or his friend's neighbor. It was someone's neighbor that he had a connection to. Um, but Terry was brain damaged and spent 15 years in a vegetative state. Her parents instigated a very public and lengthy court battle when Michael said he wished to discontinue Terry's life and he was attacked by the media. So he had an idea of what Irv and their family might have been feeling and was able to share lessons and he told Irv to be prepared. Um, you know, going forward, because obviously Irv and Margie wanted to do something about this, um, and that they would get a lot of support from people, but he was also opening himself up to criticism from a bunch of strangers. So Irv started to write up a list of questions. Why was Rachel sent to buy a weapon when she had no experience handling guns? Why was she pressured into this situation before consulting a lawyer? And why on earth was she sent into this high-risk situation with no law enforcement training? Margie had many of the same questions, and the two of them began to work together on what they would call Rachel's Law. They joined forces with a Florida attorney named Lance Block, one of Rachel's friend's fathers. Lance agreed to push for Rachel's Law pro bono and agreed to represent the family in a civil suit against the city. The main points they included were, first, they, did, they wanted to ensure that CIs would have the right to counsel. Um, next, the... So, oh, 
uh, Miranda and Sixth Amendment rights actually didn't apply to informants since they were never formally arrested or charged with a crime. So they didn't, you know, say like anything you say can and will be held against you. Like if you've ever watched any crime show, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know what that is. But so they weren't read those rights. (laughs) Stupid. Um, So second, they wanted to ban the use of juveniles altogether. Seems fair, you know. Yeah. There are protections against juveniles working. Even as a therapist, you, in, depending on what state you're in, you need a parent's consent to do therapy with children or adolescents under the age of 14, I think is usually the marker. I mean, um, and you have to like share your, your notes with their parents. Like, essentially, your parents are the client. You can't even go on a freaking school field trip without like, exactly it's permission like um as far as i'm concerned don't even look at my kids direction without getting like written consent in an email and handwritten by me like no yeah this is just appalling that that's even you know allowed so at the time like i said earlier it was under the age of 13 that they couldn't go after anyone but 14 years old yeah let me you're a confidential informant now you can risk your life fantastic um 14 year olds are seriously in the best way possible clearly they're not in a good like to me well children are obviously if they're breaking the law if you're breaking the law as a child to me that's more of a failure in some type of system of like there's gotta be like there might be something wrong with the family there might be something wrong in the school they might have been influenced by someone else it's i just feel like if a child is having difficulties if they are breaking the law if they're you know using drugs to me it's like we should not necessarily punish this person but it's clear that something more vulnerable like yeah exactly something's going wrong and they're especially vulnerable and considering that most of the people who become involved are in lower income areas and are people of color like that's just terrible there's like definitely a power dynamic there um for all there's power dynamics for all those reasons like age like and like when you're 13 or 14 you don't know anything about the law like if a cop tells you to do something you might just do it because you're scared and you don't understand that you can't you're afraid of getting arrested. You might not want your parents to find out. You know, there's like all kinds, like this person, to me, it's like, that's a cry for help then from the kids. And maybe they were doing something wrong. Absolutely. And like, there are, I think there are also ways of, you know, punishing quote unquote someone while also getting them the help they need. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm not going to say like, if someone like attacks someone and they're 14, that they just should get off scot-free. Um, but they're like i said to me if there's something going on with the kids you need to take a look at the system and go from there and definitely not use them as confidential informants (sighs) anyway so third they push for offense parity meaning non-violent low-level drug offenders should not be used to apprehend traffickers with histories of violence makes sense and fourth people who are in drug treatment programs should not be used as confidential informants fair enough like if you're trying if you're arguing that someone needs therapy but oh we're gonna make you go be in this scary situation like come on okay common sense people so later that year in august 
uh, a grand jury indicted Green and Bradshaw and also issued a scathing condemnation of the police department's conduct. The police department could no longer shift the blame to Rachel. They started an internal affairs investigation that showed police had committed at least 21 violations of nine separate policies. Chief Dennis Jones later admitted he was wrong to blame the victim and expressed regret. Good for you, Dennis. Like, okay. Great job. <laughs> um, Rachel's parents saw this as a window of opportunity. They got two Republican politicians, State Senator Mike Finasso and Representative Peter Neer, to sponsor Rachel's law. While it seemed like these reforms were the common sense thing to do, they were met with many opponents, including the Florida Department Law, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Florida Sheriff's Association, and many other groups. Vice cops argued that forbidding the use of juveniles would force them to turn a blind eye to young people committing adult crimes, and more record-keeping might increase the risk of identities being exposed. So it would be, and it would also be hard to catch and quote-unquote flip a drug suspect on the spot. So they, I guess, this is kind of understandable that they wouldn't want to keep records because people who are in these situations are really nervous about getting caught so they might not necessarily want their name somewhere but in the case of like adolescent children like i think you should be keeping track of that sort of thing but also or just, like, like leave people in general <laughs> like i'm sure that you can put it in a box locked away somewhere that other people couldn't find out yeah i just we somehow managed to do that for research purposes yeah it's not great it's just not i feel like these reasons were all kind of presented in a way that is like oh we're helping out the we, we're getting these people out of a bad spot they're helping us we're helping them but it just comes off as very disingenuous to me and it does not seem like they are prioritizing protecting people so a leon county sheriff larry campbell wonderful man that is sarcasm said <laughs> if the bill was passed it would be the end of law enforcement okay larry because you can't have little children doing your job for you that's the end of law enforcement <laughs> larry <sighs> so there was also belief that you couldn't train CIs and that they shouldn't be subject to uniform regulation. The cops kind of, and I'm sure not every police officer feels this way. I don't mean to come across as, you know, um, offensive. And I'm, you know, I don't want to, I want, I know that I'm like being really hard on this, but I'm sure that not everyone who works in this field feels this way. Um, but if informants just follow directions, they wouldn't get hurt. Um, so sure, there's always a risk, but they get themselves hurt because they weren't doing what they were told. And this was a quote from Brian Saley of BBS Narcotics Enforcement Training and Consulting. So again, that's like clearly not the opinion of everyone out in the field. But the fact that there were quite a few people that felt this way and were kind of pushing for this bill not to go forward for those reasons is quite disappointing. So a compromise bill was put forward. It didn't have all the protections included in the first bill, like the unequivocal right to legal counsel or the measure to exclude juveniles. 
However, it still promised some pretty groundbreaking rights for CIs. So cops had to do special trainings and consider a recruit's age and emotional state and level of risk going into a situation, which you weren't doing that in the first place. I don't think that that should have to be written down somewhere. <laughs> like, okay. Um, and also going forward, operations involving CIs had to ensure that safety was the first priority, which again, that wasn't like, it's ridiculous that that had to be written down and had to be kind of worked into their protocol. So on May 7th, 2009, one year after Rachel's death, the bill was passed by both chambers of Florida legislator unanimously. Rachel's parents, however, didn't think that this was enough and have vowed to keep working to strengthen the rights of CIs. In 2012, Irv and Margie were awarded a $2.6 million settlement from the city of Tallahassee in a wrongful death lawsuit and were issued a formal apology. While I'm sure it felt good to finally get that apology that was long overdue, nothing would ever be able to fill the void that Rachel left behind. Margie told the New Yorker that some days she can't even wash her hair or drive her car. The grief is overwhelming at times. But other days, Margie makes plans for the Rachel Morningstar Foundation, an organization she launched to advocate for CI reform. She has a memorial garden outside of her office window where she planted flowers of persecution, uh, which is crowned of thorns and a bleeding heart, along with the foliage of, resist of resilience, including purple passion flowers and an angel trumpeter shrub. She likes mm. to count the monarch butterflies that gather in the garden. Their bright orange color reminds her of Rachel's hair. So Irv drives to Rachel's grave every morning with a bottle of water for the flowers and a pair of scissors to freshen their stems. He now takes care of Bentley, Rachel's cat, who keeps him company. Some nights he pours over old interviews, and other days he reads through the note that Rachel left him before she left for college, where she says, Dad, please don't worry about me. I'm a very smart, independent girl, and I do have morals and ethics you've taught me, which will not be left at home. Have faith, old man. I'll be just fine. Mm. And that is the case of Rachel Hoffman. You did choose a sad one. It was really sad, but it was also just so, like, I just couldn't even believe it when I first read, like, the little blurb on Reddit. Yeah. And now I feel like I have learned so much about confidential, like, I didn't know any of that before. I had no idea. So, at the very least, I hope that anyone who's listening, I know this was a really tough one and it was really hard for me, especially since I just see so many parallels between myself and Rachel, but that, like, it's just crazy that this was ever allowed to happen, that she was so young and so vulnerable and that th some, like, she had so many things protecting her at the same time where people are in worse off positions than she was and might feel more that's why i want to look into some more cases where i'm sure you know like i as i was reading through some of the articles they talked about how this has affected you know black families or adolescent families like she wasn't even an adolescent or you know she came from a 
a place where she did have the support of her parents. You know, they might not have been happy about what had happened, but if she had went to them, you know, I'm sure that they would have been there for her. I'm sure they would have hired a lawyer. I'm sure they would have figured something out. Whereas someone who, you know, doesn't have a supportive family, doesn't have supportive friends, someone who's like literally a child, um, you know, would be way more easily manipulated into doing this. So at the very least, I'm glad that I am learning more about this and I'm going to be aware of it from now on. Um, Yeah. I think like with a lot of our cases, I just feel like one, the overarching thing that I feel like keeps screaming at us is how much reform Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.